Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Norris Cotton Cancer Center uh, Grand Rounds. Thank you for, for coming. We've got a great uh, turnout. Um, I want to welcome everyone in the room and those watching uh, remotely, and I want to uh, send out a special uh, welcome to our American uh, Cancer Society uh, volunteers and, and staff who are here today. We, we met with American Cancer S uh, Society leadership um, earlier this morning, and um, really it, it, it's wonderful to note just how the values of the American Cancer Society and the values of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center are in such great resonance in terms of uh, doing great research and putting patients and families uh, first. So welcome uh, to the ACS. Uh, I'm going to introduce our guest speaker, um, Amber Bernardo, in just a moment. But before I do, I want to um, uh, fulfill our conflict of interest requirements and say that uh, Dr. Bernardo does not have any uh, financial uh, in interests um, that are, are, are um, or does not have any financial interest. She does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device today. And she is not receiving direct patients from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And finally, for CME credit for today's activity, please use uh, the activity code that's displayed uh, outside this room. So with that, it's uh, um, um, a wonderful privilege to introduce our speaker, Amber, uh, uh, today. Uh, Amber uh, received uh, her many different illustrious degrees from a variety of inferior institutions, including <laughs> UC Berkeley, Harvard, and Stanford. Um, she then uh, joined the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, initially as an assistant professor of medicine and climbing through the ranks uh, on the faculty in medicine and health policy and management and in uh, bioethics. Um, and then she uh, um, moved here to Dartmouth, where she um, was named the Susan J. and Richard M. Levy, uh, Dartmouth Class of 1960, Distinguished Professor in Healthcare uh, Delivery. Um, she has an appointment in the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, the Geisel School of Medicine, and here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. She's board certified in preventive medicine and public health, and um, uh, she's a decision scientist and carries the unique distinction of, I believe, being uh, Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock's only uh, holder of an endowed professorship who's also uh, a trainee currently in the final two months of her fellowship in palliative care. And uh, Amber's research focuses on variation in end-of-life intensive care unit and life-sustaining uh, treatment use um, with remarkable relevance to uh, end-of-life uh, issues that our, our cancer patients uh, deal with. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Amber to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Thank you, Steve. Can everybody hear me back there? Yes. Great. Um, so uh, first, uh, my financial disclosure. The work that I'm going to be talking about here comes from uh, studies that have been funded by the American Cancer so Society, the NIH, the Greenwall Foundation, the Jewish Healthcare Foundation, the Samuel and Emma Winters Foundation, um, seed money from the University of Pittsburgh, and also from the Levy Cluster in Healthcare Delivery Science here at Dartmouth. Um, and so uh, the way I'm going to organize this talk is I'm going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> some of the work that has motivated um, a current American Cancer Society grant that I'll tell you a little bit about. 
Um, and I'll start with a story about myself and about how I got interested in this work. Um, for any of you who um, have seen a previous talk that I've given here at Dartmouth, some of this may um, be uh, duplicative. So in advance, I apologize. Uh, but I look forward to hearing uh, any questions that you may have. Feel free to interrupt me along the way. So this is a, a photograph of me in 1994 as a, a general surgery intern at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, um, doing you know, the classic multitasking behaviors of an intern. I believe I'm simultaneously uh, returning a page and writing um, uh, post-operative notes and orders back when they used to be in the old-fashioned paper form, if any of you want to just take a moment and remember those days. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and what what happened to me is I had an ex I had a, a series of experiences that were somewhat um, I think uh, serendipitous. But in my class, um, in my in my in my fellow in my surgery uh, residency, three PGY twos quit in the first couple of months of uh, my internship. And so in scrambling to try to staff the PGY two positions, I got pushed in paradoxically into covering PGY2 slots for a large amount of my internship. Um, and in fact, that meant six months covering our, our ICUs, and the surgeons covered all the ICUs except for one anesthesia-run ICU in the health system. Across multiple hospitals, I was taking care of patients in the ICU. I, I have the distinction of being the only University of Colorado general surgery intern to complete an internship without completing an appendectomy for that reason. <laughs> But I took care of a lot of patients in the ICU, many, many very sick patients, and I experienced a lot of moral distress from that. Ex that um, uh, and this was before the advent of palliative care, and in fact, I, I remember when um, the um, a patient in particular that I took care of who was very, very sick with multisystem organ failure, and there was really no chance that he was going to get out of the hospital alive, and if he did, it was going to be with severe functional compromise, and this was a uh, a, a young uh, middle-aged man, um, and I remember uh, working really hard to get a multidisciplinary family meeting together, which again wasn't something that they did on a regular basis, and I got the surgeons, and I got everyone in the room, and the surgeons sat down with the wife, and literally the family meeting was, we're doing everything we can, and then they ended the meeting. Um, and, <laughs> and so I got interested in this business of end-of-life decision-making, and particularly in the intensive care unit. I ended up leaving my internship, or rather completing my internship and leading, leaving my uh, residency and going on to do a residency in preventive medicine and public health. Um, and uh, during that period of time, I got, um, what, what happened to me was I, uh, I was listening to NPR and uh, heard about this study, which um, many of you in the room are familiar with. This is a really landmark study. It's called the Study to Understand Prognoses and Preferences for Outcomes and Risks of Treatment, the support study. It was done by uh, five centers around the U.S., and some of the authors were from Dartmouth. And <clears throat> this turned, this kind of put a light bulb down in my head because I had had this moral distress, and I was thinking that medicine was wacky and that I didn't know if I could still be part of it and was sort of shifting into preventive medicine and public health. Um, and heard about a study that was describing the deficiencies, um, uh, the documented shortcomings in end-of-life care. And it occurred to me that there were people who were studying this and that I wasn't crazy and that I could do that too. If I wanted to 
try to make a difference. I didn't have to try to just reform the practice of medicine. I could do research and try to make an, uh, an impact that way. And so that's when I shifted my career to start focusing on research and outcomes research in particular, health services. Um, at about the same time, um, the Dartmouth Atlas for Healthcare began mapping variation in healthcare uh, in end-of-life intensity by region. And let me orient you to this slide for those of you who aren't familiar with the Dartmouth Atlas maps. This is a map of the United States where each of the geographic uh, boundaries is a hospital referral region. And there are 306 hospital referral regions. And they're highlighted from dark red to kind of a peach color, where the darker color reflects a greater use of spending at the end of life. Uh, and this uh, shows that there's a huge amount of variation. And it was really kind of landmark work that was done here at the Dartmouth Institute. Um, it was then called uh, something else. Um, and it was, it was the kind of first awakening in my mind of this idea that you could really study variations uh, and that that could be a, a place to start trying to understand how physicians and uh, patients make decisions and how it might differ where, based on where you live or the hospital at which you're treated. Um, I uh, went on after my residency in preventive medicine and public health at the State uh, Health Department in California to a, a, a fellowship at Stanford. And then I was very fortunate to have my Stanford mentor, Alan Garber, introduced me to John Skinner when I started my uh, first job at the University of Pittsburgh. So I was moving from California back east, and he said, well, here, let me introduce you to another economist who might be able to help you do Medicare claims data analysis. And so although I was on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, very early on in my career, in around 2002, I started getting invited up to participate in uh, multidisciplinary uh, research meetings uh, that were funded by the National Institute of Aging with John Skinner as lead and this really got me into um, this area of studying variations. And in particular, I think I want to make a, just a shout out to the incredible generosity that Dartmouth showed in inviting me, a University of Pittsburgh faculty, into the fold and, and providing me with opportunities to network and also to do actual um, data analysis and writing papers on projects that they were running out of, uh, out of Dartmouth. And so one of my first papers with the folks at Dartmouth was uh, this one, um, which was uh, kind of a, a, a really important um, paper. Uh, so if you, if, I, if you recall that map that showed that there was huge variations in treatment intensity at the end of life, well, one of the major hypotheses has been, okay, well, there must just be differences in preferences of the patients who live in those regions. They must be different, and so they're getting the care that's consistent with their goals and values. This graph shows, um, this was a, we did a, a national uh, survey of Medicare beneficiaries across the United States, and we asked them some questions about the, the uh, uh, end of life, um, and we, they were hypothetical questions. These were probability sampled patients who were 65 and older, so they didn't necessarily have a terminal condition. And these are the uh, quintiles of treatment intensity going from the least intensive to the most intensive. And then these are the responses to these questions by region. And I'm just going to read the questions. Um, that, that wh whether or not the patients are concerned with that uh, they would receive too little uh, care at the end of life, uh, concerned that they would receive too much care at the end of life, that they would prefer to spend the last days in the hospital, that they would prefer a, a life prolongation. They want drugs that would keep, uh, make me feel worse uh, as long as it might prolong my life. Or if they wanted palliative focus, 
They'd prefer to have drugs that would make them feel better, even if they might shorten my life. And they asked that if you had one month to live, would you want to be put on a respirator? And then if you had one week to live, would you want to be put on a respirator? And although it's also interesting, the um, actual uh, mean responses to all these questions, again, focusing, you appear that most people would prefer a palliative focus, few would want life-supporting therapies. Um, but the thing that was a big takeaway was that there was no difference in the mean response by region. In other words, regardless of whether you were from a lower treatment intensity region or a higher treatment intensity region, you had similar preferences. And so this was one of the first papers that showed that really regional variation in end-of-life intensity is not explained by patient preferences. Um, what I started doing, again, was um, in large part motivated by the work here at Dartmouth, but down at the University of Pittsburgh, is I, uh, I, I started actually doing some of this research focusing on end-of-life treatment variation at the hospital level. So this is a, a picture of uh, the state of Pennsylvania. And I'm going to see if this works. I'm going to hyperlink. Oops. It's not going to work. Let's see if I can. Well, I'm going to I'm going to wait for my next uh, my next Tableau slide to to go out to the um, internet to do this. But what I want you to see here is that basically each of these circles is a particular hospital. The size of the bubble is proportionate to the total sample of patients seen at that hospital. And the color represents the relative treatment intensity. So if it's a reddish hospital, it's more, uh, re they receive more aggressive end-of-life care. And if it's a green hospital, and you can see that there's this gradation where it goes from red into green, if it's a green hospital, it has less aggressive end-of-life care. And so you can see just in one state that there was a very wide variation in treatment intensity, uh, where, where uh, the area right around Philadelphia and Pittsburgh have more intensive treatment than the areas in, the, in uh, the center of Pennsylvania, which are quite rural. So one of the things that uh, I did was try to look at, um, well, what are the characteristics of the hospitals that have more or less treatment intensity? And I did a comprehensive survey of all of the hospitals in Pennsylvania, asking them things not just about uh, their structural characteristics, like their bed size or um, information about uh, their patient population, but actually about kind of procedures and policies that were in the hospital. Um, I can't remember to this day exactly how many questions, but there were, there were, a, there were I think, 30 different policies and procedures that I asked about, um, all of which had been hypothesized in the literature to have some relationship with end-of-life care treatment intensity. And it was fascinating because it turned out that almost none of those factors predicted end-of-life treatment intensity. The only things that were significantly predictive uh, were um, bed size at the larger hospitals, uh, hospitals in more competitive regions, that's what the Herfindahl-Hirschman index is. Interestingly enough, um, this variable, the proportion of admissions among black patients turned out to be positively predictive. And then, um, actually, an ICU long length of stay review committee was positively predictive, and that's probably an example of reverse causation, that if a committee had been formed to address ICU long length of stay, it was because they had aggressive end-of-life care. But taken together, only half of the variation in treatment intensity at the end of life in hospitals in Pennsylvania could be explained by hospital case mix, that is, the population seen, the structure of the hospital, or the processes of care.
And so I became fascinated with this question of, well, what is it then that's causing these variations? And I was particularly intrigued by this, um, this concentration of uh, black patients. And, and I spent a considerable part of my career kind of uh, focusing on that. And, and I, what I found was that it's not that minority patients who are at the same hospital as non-minority patients are treated more intensively. It's that minority patients are seen at hospitals that treat everybody more intensively, both black and white patients. And so I'm going to show you this graph to represent that. So basically here on the left axis is the proportion of the entire sample um, that's in each of these different deciles of treatment intensity. So if I break those, um, uh, all of the Pennsylvania hospitals into treatment intensity decile, where the most intensive is on the right and the least intensive is on the left, you see that the black patients, again, it's hard to control the, I'm going to walk over here. You can see that the black bars, which are representing the black patients, and the white bars, which are representing the white patients, you can see that more of the black patients are being treated at the hospitals that are higher intensity. But that if you then just look at conditional on being in one of those deciles, you look at the relative, let's say, the use of intensive care between white and black patients, it's actually similar. But as you get to the more intensive hospitals, both blacks and whites are treated more aggressively. So this was one of the first things that I, uh, I began to uh, discover. And, and we found this increasingly in uh, lots of other um, quality issues in, in U.S. healthcare. is that it's not, but while black patients may be receiving lower quality care, a large amount of the quality gap is because they are seen at, they are taken care of in lower quality hospitals. They're geographically located proximate to hospitals that treat both black and white patients with lower quality, or in this case, higher end-of-life treatment intensity. Um, this is also another graph from that same study, which is looking at those hospitals in Pennsylvania, which is basically ranking the hospitals by the proportion, the number of black admissions, where if you're over here on the left-hand side, there's more black admissions, and over here on the right-hand side, there's fewer black admissions. And this is a cumulative distribu distribution function of all the blacks in Pennsylvania seen uh, at those hospitals, and there's basically 29% of hospitals in Pennsylvania serve 80% of all of the blacks in the, in the, in the entire state. And so where I'm, what I'm trying to set up for you is, is the fact that if you're interested in studying minority health in the acute care setting, going to places that treat the majority of the blacks in the region or in, a, in the case of the United States, you can actually learn more about the experience of black patients than uh, just focusing on blacks and whites uh, at a particular hospital, if that makes sense. Um, and so my career has been focused considerably on this issue of the concentration of uh, minority patients in, per in particular hospitals. Um, and it also makes it a lot easier to study because then you don't actually have to study every hospital in the United States. You can focus on the hospitals that are minority serving. So um, this is where members of my research team who are blinded to the intensity of the cancer centers have got to close their eyes. I see Gabe and Kristen and Narav. <laughs> close your eyes. Um, so um, the, um, we've just recently updated the Dartmouth Atlas for end-of-life care for cancer centers. And I'm going to show you that data. And I'm going to try to get out into um, the interactive no, 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 no. Just, 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 just keep your eyes closed. <laughs> it's just one slide. Um, so basically, what I've got here then is now we're now shifting, and, and, and I was 
previously talking about hospitals in the state of Pennsylvania, which is what I focused on for my um, NIA-funded work. I've now shifted over to focusing on U.S. cancer centers. Um, again, U.S. cancer centers that are in particular funded by the NCI and NCCN cancer centers. Ideally, uh, although um, they don't necessarily take care of the majority of Americans with cancer, they are supposed to be the places that serve as beacons providing guidelines and leadership to the rest of the country in terms of optimal cancer care. And so I've decided in this, uh, in this grant that's funded by the American Cancer Society to focus on cancer centers. Um, and this graph shows um, each of the cancer centers where the size of the dot is proportional to the number of minorities seen at that center. And so places, for example, that are just big will have a lot of minorities. Um, but then, uh, for example, down here at, uh, at MD Anderson, um, but they also have um, uh, a large uh, uh, non-white population. And so the size of the circle is proportionate to the number of minorities. The color, which goes again from kind of this red to peach, similar to what you saw in the Dartmouth Atlas map, the red is more intensive. In this case, the uh, proportion of patients with advanced cancer who are admitted to the ICU in the last 30 days of life. If they're more intensive, they're red, and if they're less intensive or have a lower proportion of their patients admitted in the last 30 days of life, they're going to be in peach. Um, and so do, does anybody have a favorite cancer center that they want to have me hover over? The Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Okay. Well, the problem with the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, okay, I, I can't even do it with tears. It's... It's okay. So first of all, you see it's a tiny little dot because it doesn't serve very many minority patients. You can see that um, that this is again based on the it's 2016 data. So there were a total of 150 deaths here uh, attributable to this hospital that were uh, poor prognosis cancers. That only one percent were non-white. Um, you're, we're doing okay for this quality measure. This is an NQF quality measure called the proportion of um, hospice, proportion of patients who only had three days or less of hospice, which is 7%. If you have three days or less of hospice, it's considered low quality care. This is the proportion of patients who were admitted to the ICU in the last 30 days, uh, 28%. And then 53% received a palliative care consult in the last six months of life. And so that's, a, that's um, one place, although... Just to, as a, um, in this American Cancer Society study, we're using the Norris Cotton Cancer Center to do our pilot work to prepare our uh, manual of operations for observation in the oncology setting, but we're not going to be collecting any data here because you don't serve minority patients. Um, is there another cancer center that anyone's interested in? Roswell Park. In? New York. Okay, so you guys have to help me because it's hard for me. Uh, there. Oh. There. Okay, um, So um, there was not enough data to look at the proportion of patients um, uh, who had less than three days of hospice. You have really low uh, ICU admits, um, but but uh, your palliative care isn't as um, isn't as um, uh, it doesn't touch as many patients as here. 
Any what, one more I want to do? Anyone? Okay. Can you guys see it? There it is. Okay. Um, so again, you saw this, just the sheer sample size is different, 633 patients. You can see how big the circle is. They're serving a lot of minorities. A total of 21% of their patients are non-white. Um, only 5% uh, of their patients had hospice in the last three days of life. Low rates of ICU admission, only 14%. But look at the palliative care consults. It's 18%. So again, this is all 2006 data. So um, I'm going to go see if I can go back to the PowerPoint slide. So our plan, I'm going to go to the next slide so that my colleagues can open their eyes. So my, my plan is, uh, with these colleagues um, who, I've, who I've named, we're going to be visiting six cancer centers across the United States that we're going to sample based on having heterogeneity in end-of-life treatment intensity, and we're interested in particular in minority-serving cancer centers. So we'll be going to those places where there are e um, either high total numbers of minorities or a high concentration of minorities. Um, and uh, in, in preparation for this, um, this intensive case study, I conducted two comparison case studies of hospitals in the same state and the same health system uh, that were national NCI-funded cancer centers, but that were at opposite extremes of end-of-life treatment intensity um, as measured by the Dartmouth Atlas. And this was to build a kind of a conceptual model of trying to understand really, well, what is happening? Why are these places more or less intensive at the end of life if it's not just things like bed size? Once you're starting to compare large academic medical centers that are NCI-funded cancer centers that have similar size um, in the same state under the same kind of regulatory environment, why would they have such huge variation in end-of-life treatment intensity? Um, and this is all work that, again, has been funded by the American Cancer Society, the NIH, and uh, several foundations. So my research model combines, essentially, um, I'm trying to use kind of a basic science um, uh, analogy here. I'm combining the observation of real or in vivo as well as simulated or in vitro decision making. Um, and so what I do is I spend time uh, with a multidisciplinary team observing clinical care as a fly on the wall, taking field notes, collecting artifacts, and interviewing providers, members of the leadership team, and patients and families about their care experiences. And then we also run the physicians through a simulation to try to see how they make decisions when we control all of the aspects of the case the case, uh, the patient's sociodemographics, uh, as well as their clinical situation. And then I do debriefing interviews after the, after the doctor's seen the patient, written their orders, and um, uh, uh, made their um, clinical assessment. Uh, we do a debriefing interview with them. And uh, in this particular study that I'm going to tell you about, the way that we did the debriefing interviews, we had the providers watch their own video of the simulated encounter and tell us what they were thinking as they went on. And so the simulated case in, in over there in the right, he was a 78-year-old man with metastatic gastric cancer who's admitted from a local nursing home. And he has, uh, based on the, the assessment um, of 
uh, a recent CT. Uh, he has lymphangitic spread of the cancer into his lungs, and he comes in with hypoxia. He's been, uh, it's, it's most likely going to be um, attributable to cancer progression, um, but he's being treated empirically for um, uh, pneumonia. Uh, and the way that the simulation is set up is that the providers are, receive a chart with all of the diagnostic information and the decisions that have been made by the previous provider, and they're just called to the bedside because the patient's um, vital signs are starting to drop. They're basically getting hypoxic, uh, hypotensive, uh, and tachycardic, and it looks like they're getting ready to arrest. So this would be like a, a, a medical, we, we call it a hurt call here, one of these medical emergency team calls. And so I enrolled emergency physicians, hospital medicine doctors, and intensive care doctors to sort of come to the simulation environment and uh, suspend disbelief and come into the, um, into the room and see these vital signs. And, and I don't know if any of you can see the vital signs uh, in the lower right, but the way we designed the simulation is so that it sh uh, they should be scared. They walk into the room and they should be sort of uh, very, very worried that this patient is going to um, uh, arrest soon and that if they uh, don't do something, the patient might soon die. But we also set up the clinical situation to make it very clear that the patient had terminal cancer um, and had a very limited life expectancy. And then we didn't give any information about the patient's goals, values, and preferences. There was no uh, advanced directive on the chart, and that was going to be their task if they chose to do it, to actually elicit information about the, the patient's treatment preferences. And the way that we set up this particular case was that the patient prefers not to be intubated and not to go to the ICU again, um, but that the wife is um, anxious and ambivalent, and that if the doctor provides a recommendation, she'll follow it. If, he, if the doctor, he or she, provides uh, a couple of different treatment options, she's supposed to ask for a recommendation. Um, if he's asked directly what he wants, his main speaking line is, no tube, <laughs> because he's hypoxic and short of breath and not able to talk much. So the, the, um, the things that I'm focusing on in this research are a couple of social science constructs that I'll introduce to you. One is called norms, um, and these are commonly agreed upon rules of behavior reinforced by social sanctions. And that can include formal norms, which are things like policies, and informal or social norms that are things that are enforced socially. And there, those are all kinds of things that we see in our day-to-day -day life, and they actually become invisible to us. But they're, they're the way things are done, uh, and, and they are uh, even, for example, the fact that you um, you might hold a door for somebody as a social norm. There's no, there's no written policy that says you have to do that, but if someone's walking in right behind you and you've got the door, you tend to hold it open for them. That's a social norm. Um, a heuristic is uh, a mental shortcut that allows people to solve problems and make judgments quickly and efficiently. Now, cognitive science has uh, concluded now that there are essentially two ways that we um, uh, make decisions or judgments. One is a system one, very quick way. It's a heuristic way, um, and it's, uh, it's probably the way that most of us make most of our decisions. Um, it's computationally efficient, but it's subject to biases. Um, and then there's the system two way, which is the sort of algorithmic type of decision making that you might face, for example, if you're trying to um, you know, buy a new car and you might have like a pro-con sheet and you've written some different things out and you're trying to actually systematically consider different um, uh, aspects of a, of a decision. And uh, heuristics, um, the reason that I'm interested in heuristics is because uh, in addition to um, 
informing most of the medical decisions that each of you make every day, regardless of your um, discipline, whether or not you're a, a social worker or a nurse or a physician, uh, you make decisions quite quickly, uh, and it's because of your expertise and experience that you make those. But um, over time, you can imagine that if you make those decisions in a certain way or in a certain environment, they can actually become biased based on your, um, your experiences. Um, so um, I started with an initial conceptual model and, and refined it as I went along, but that is that um, the thing we're interested in, or that I'm interested in, is essentially utilization, <coughs> healthcare utilization. That's something like ICU use at the end of life. And I'm, I'm arguing that it's affected by uh, the organizational formal policies affect the individual provider's values, judgments. Um, it also influences the social norms. These interact together, the actual individual's values, judgment, and self-efficacy and communication skill and, their, um, and the social norms to create the utilization care processes. And whatever the care processes or provider behavior, that influences patient and family expectations about care. And I think this is really important because remember that initial slide that I showed you where you actually ask patients in a hypothetical way across the United States about whether, for example, they would like to be uh, get palliative care if they only have um, a year to live versus life-prolonging care. Um, basically, um, patients don't have a lot of... Um, a lot of experience often with these kinds of decisions. And so they themselves are kind of coming up with, you know, the, the, the best answer that they can, and they're looking for cues in their environment. In some cases, they might be cues that are actually really meaningful to them. For example, they had an experience with a loved one who um, had an end-of-life experience, and then through that experience, they developed some goals or values or preferences, like, oh, if this should ever happen to me, I want, might want things to go a different way. But sometimes they don't actually have a lot of experience, and they're looking for cues in their environment, for example, something that a provider may be saying to them or offering to them. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of this variation that we see between centers is going to come from, and that's been a um, kind of one of my leading hypotheses. So let me tell you a little bit about this uh, study. As I told you, it was between two uh, uh, major cancer centers in the United States, and one was the low intensity and one was the high intensity. And, and uh, after observing with a sociologist, a nurse ethnographer, and myself for four months um, and analyzing the data, we found that the norms of decision-making regarding, in, in particular, life-supporting therapy in the intensive care unit differ between high and low um, at low and high end-of-life treatment intensity cancer centers. So let me see if I can summarize this a little bit to you. So on the, um, on the, in the first column is um, the variable. On the next column is what we observed in the lower-intensity academic medical center, and on the right, the higher-intensity academic medical center. At the lower-intensity academic medical center, um, any uh, initiation of life-sustaining treatment, like a mechanical ventilator or um, CVVH, was initiated as a time-limited trial. And it had to be a bridge to something. That's what the bridge represents, a bridge to recovery. It was a means to an end. Um, and I'll give you a quote to give you an example. Um, this was a fellow um, on rounds saying, well, it was worth a trial. He's talking about CVVH at 3 a.m. for a few days. But now that his liver is really not improved, the family is, has wanted to clear, to continue without a clear endpoint, since we decided on no transplant, we were kind of dialyzing him to infinity, and the guy was not going to get any better. So the attending response, CVVH was a means to no end. So in this case, they basically made a decision to stop dialyzing the patient um, in anticipation of his death. 
Um, a very similar patient at the higher intensity hospital um, where they use open-ended life-supporting therapies. And, and it appears that life-sustaining therapy is an end in itself. Um, there was a, a, a patient, again, very similar, um, where the attending said on rounds, she was here when I was on service three weeks ago. We can't go on indefinitely. What's the end point? And the fellow said, her dry weight. And so they were basically focusing on narrow physiologic goals rather than thinking about kind of broader um, what's medically achievable. Um, there was also a, a difference in uh, what, how the different um, providers at the two hospitals defined what it means to be dying um, and, and, and similarly how they interpreted advanced directives. So at the low-intensity hospital, a patient was dying if they had a terminal diagnosis or they had a very poor quality of life, and they, it led to a very broad, there was a broad interpretation of advanced directives. Whereas at the high-intensity hospital, a patient was dying really when there was physiologic futility. That is, if life-sustaining therapy could no longer keep them alive, they were dying. And so it led to this narrow definition of advanced directives. And I'll give you an example. So um, uh, at the low-intensity hospital, a resident said, again, on rounds, his family has been told that it is terminal and that he has a very short period of time to live. He has very poor neurologic function, only opens his eyes, doesn't track or communicate or follow commands. And the ICU team, as well as others, have felt that continuing to care for this man in an aggressive fashion was very undignified to him. And then at the high-intensity hospital, I had an attending uh, say, um, his living will states that he doesn't want to be a burden to his family. If he's not going to get better, he doesn't want life-sustaining therapy. So none of these decisions, this man was on maximal life support in the ICU, have gone against what his living will states because everything that has happened to him has shown the potential to improve, but if he makes it through, this, he's going to have a prolonged course where he will probably need to go to a nursing home if he can get through these acute illnesses. Um, at the, at the low-intensity hospital, there was a much greater concern with harms of commission, essentially doing things to patients that, that uh, were potentially harmful, whereas at the high-intensity hospital, there was concerns about harms of omission, that is, failing to do things to patients that might cause their harm. So, for example, there was a patient who... Um, was being uh, uh, mechanically ventilated, he was of advanced age, and there, he was making a lot of hand signals and gesturing as if he wanted to communicate. And there was tons of angst am among this team about whether or not they were treating him with aggressive life-supporting therapy against his will. Um, and so um, that was incredibly distressing to the team, and, and so the resident describes the scene. He said, at one point, he held his fingers up in an X, he put his hand up like he did not want the intervention. We opted to extubate him to see if we could talk to him about what kind of intervention he would want. I was there when we extubated, and his first words to me were, take home, take home. So in that case, they, they literally extubated a patient in order to have a conversation with him because they were so uncomfortable with the possibility of treating him against his wishes. At the high-intensity hospital, on the other hand, they were much more worried about the harms of Omission. This is a case of a, a patient who was admitted through the ED and was um, had a DNR order in that nursing home, but it wasn't transported with her, and she was inadvertently she had, uh, DNR DNI, and she was inadvertently intubated in the emergency department. 
um, in the emergency department when they um, intubated her and, and put a line in, she uh, got a pneumothorax. And so then she was admitted up to the ICU. And the attending said, well, by the time I got on the case this morning, she was already extubatable. So we extubated her and then made her again DNR, DNI. But just we still had to deal with the chest tube. We had to finish up the antibiotics for pneumonia. So everything we had started, we were finishing. Um, another thing that was very different about the two hospitals was the, the physicians at the low-intensity hospital had a high self-efficacy for, for decision-making. They, they really saw kind of moving the patients and families through this very difficult decision process as kind of their job. Um, and they um, had an internal locus of control, whereas at the high-intensity hospital, they had very low self-efficacy for decision-making, and they externalized the locus of control. And I'll give you some quote examples. Um, at the low... Um, at the, at the uh, low-intensity hospital, there was, again, a case where there was uh, a lot of family conflict. The patient was um, super sick, and there was an iatrogenic uh, cause in part to what was essentially going to be a terminal, uh, a life-ending complication. And the wife was, was really angry. And uh, this was during interdisciplinary rounds when the attending says to the social worker, sort of, sort of, kind of imagining that they're going to have to take the family in hand. This is someplace you could really help with. The family is angry, not believing the situation. He had an embolization in August, and they blame that on his downhill slide. He was vital prior to that embolization. So they essentially they view family requests for ongoing life-sustaining treatment as part of the normal trajectory. They think, well, of course the family is going to want someone to kind of make their loved one better. And so we're not going to see that as anything other than a normal part of a process as they're coming to terms with the actual um, clinical situation, what's medically achievable and what the, out, what the outcomes are likely to be. Whereas at the high-intensity hospital, the physicians just uh, uh, really externalized the locus of control. One attending would say on rounds, I think it's crazy to operate on this lady, but I'm not going to tell the surgeons what to do. And so, again, they just said, you know, whatever the surgeons are going to do. And then another attending said sort of derisively about a patient who had metastatic pancreatic cancer and multisystem organ failure, I can keep her alive as long as the daughter wants us to. Again, this idea of like, fine, fine. You want that? And it was almost um, my experience of it was that there was kind of a learned helplessness that they had felt they were, they, they felt so frustrated that they had just kind of thrown up their hands. At the... Um, at the lower-intensity AMC, and again, these were both very racially diverse settings, um, we didn't observe any explicit racial, racial bias, um, despite the fact that, that there were um, uh, many, many different cultures. We, we saw cultures noted and acknowledged and, and managed um, thoughtfully and respectfully in according to certain principles. Um, so, for example, um, there was a, a, a family, a, a a wife of a, of a patient from a culture where uh, women don't have decision-making authority, and she was the surrogate. And so she would never be allowed to make a decision to limit life-supporting therapy. And so after a 20-person ethics consult, uh, a decision was made to have two attending physicians determine that the patient's uh, ongoing treatment was futile, and they made the decision to discontinue life-supporting therapy understanding that the wife could never do that. Um, and so that was a situation where they kind of saw, noted, and managed uh, cultural um, diversity, but without being derisive in any way about it or judging it. Um, at the high-intensity hospital, um, 
they use stereotypes, and um, we saw this a number of different times. Um, one, an attending uh, says on rounds, I talked to the patient. He said this is not what he wants, the medical care he's receiving. But the wife is not willing to hear this, nor is the family. You know, there are certain cultures that believe you should do everything possible for the patient, and he fits that mold very, very well. Uh, we had another case where uh, uh, an attending came up to us on a Monday after being on service over the weekend and said um, he had been talking about a particular cultural group that always wanted life-supporting therapy. And he, he came and said, you know, I, because you guys have been observing us, I started thinking a little bit about that. And um, uh, so, you know, our patient up on you know, five, um, well, he was, insert racial group, and I, you know, I, I just figured that they would want everything. But I decided I would just ask. Um, and it turns out the family was totally reasonable, and they, once they understood what the outcome was going to be, they didn't want any more life-supporting therapy. Um, and he was totally surprised by that because he was coming in with all these generalizations based on his experience with a particular um, uh, cultural group. Um, so this is, I'm going to have to walk you through this, but so this is basically some work um, uh, that, that basically came with that same study, but this is... Um, drawn from those simulation encounters that I told you a little bit about, where the doctors are seeing the exact same case in a simulation setting. But the thing that I learned that was fascinating is that the hospitals from the low intensity, uh, the, patient, the doctors from the low intensity hospital and the doctors from the high intensity hospital saw the exact same case, which is, again, I told you the 78-year-old man um, who had metastatic gastric cancer. But they perceived the case completely differently. And I'm going to try to walk you through this. So um, in the, at the high-intensity hospital, um, when they heard that the patient had sort of metastatic cancer and no DNR on the chart, that didn't surprise them at all because their oncologists don't discuss advanced care planning. Um, in fact, uh, one quote was... Um, Usually, there'll be some additional experimental therapy that their oncologist has up their sleeves. It may not be proven. It may be experimental. It may not work, but we're going to try it, and so that's the mindset of most of our patients. The oncologist hasn't discussed code status or what other treatments are available. And so if the oncologist is not talking about any advanced care planning and is offering further experimental therapies, then the patients come to expect that that will be the treatment that they will receive. The admitting specialists also don't discuss or document code status. And so that means that when the doctors, as I said, when they were called in to see the patient, it turns out that the doctors from the high-intensity hospital assumed that the patient's deterioration was caused by advanced cancer, and that was their diagnosis, their assessment of the patient. And so their intuitive judgment sort of led them to think that this is kind of an end-of-life situation, but that the, uh, the patient's dying but probably doesn't know it because nobody's talked to them about it yet. And so they had a sort of heuristic in their head that this was an end-of-life case. And they diagnosed that the cause of the um, illness was a metastatic cancer. Now, at the low-intensity hospital, what happened was, and this was ev every single uh, uh, hospital-based physician called the bedside to sort of furiously looking through the chart for something. And I asked one after the other, like, what are you looking for? They're like, well, I'm looking for the code status. I mean, I, I, there, has to have been a, there has to have been a conversation on admission because all of the admitting hospitalists discuss and document code status. Their oncologists also discuss advanced care planning. 
And so many of the patients have come in with some level of um, uh, reflection on this. Um, and so, as again, if the oncologists are discussing advanced care planning and uh, palliative treatment options, that might influence what patients or families want. And if the admitting hospitalists are discussing and documenting code status, then the fact that my patient, that 78-year-old, didn't have a DNR order on the, on the chart meant something to the hospitalist. It basically meant to them, if they're being summoned uh, to the bedside, it means that they, dying is unexpected. That if they don't have a DNR order on the chart, it means their full code. And so because of that, when they evaluated the patient, they thought that the cause of deterioration was an infection and that it was a potentially reversible thing. So again, the exact same case was perceived differently by the two sets of hospital-based physicians, again, because they bring with them all the baggage of their experience in their hospitals and sort of project it onto the patient at hand. Um, now, I think these norms and heuristics go on to shape patient and surrogate treatment choices through provider communication. And I'm going to give you a great example that came from that simulation study. Um, when, um, when, the pa when the doctors came in and they talked about treatment options, um, they, um, most of the time, um, about 90% of the time, they, um, they mentioned treatment options of going to the ICU and receiving mechanical ventilation, um, and they also discussed um, comfort focused, a comfort-focused plan of care. But they always mentioned the ICU first and intubation first. It was always presented first. And when they did present it, this is the proportion of subjects using each of the different rhetorical frames. And these are the different rhetorical frames, which are uh, for intubation is in the, can you guys see that? Oh, that's a ghost. Oh, that's weird. Um, you can see the numbers above, right? Sorry. This, one, this bar goes with this one, this bar goes with this one. That bar goes <laughs> with that one. Let me just give you the takeaway. Um, when they talked about something, they, when, they, when they mentioned intubation, they said, we will intubate or we must intubate um, most frequently. Um, and then uh, they, they, they less frequently said, uh, we usually intubate um, uh, or we could intubate. Whereas when they talked about palliative care or comfort-focused measures, they were much more likely to say, they didn't say, um, they were much more likely to say, you can see over here, this is something that we could do. And so basically they used different modal verbs for discussing will, must versus could, um, and always presented ICU first. So again, I think that this is an example of a way in which certain Norms and heuristics get communicated non-verbally, and then I'm or verbally, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, some non-verbal communication uh, mechanisms. So, um, on top of all of these norms and heuristics, where I talked a little bit about some um, explicit racial bias at the high-intensity hospital or cu cultural bias, um, uh, I think that uh, race-specific heuristics and biases may further complicate decision making, and we're all familiar with um, the about explicit and implicit bias when it comes to um, race and other characteristics. I did a research study, again, the same simulation, where um, I had uh, patients who were um, either black, 
or white, and then they had surrogate decision makers, um, and I had physicians randomized to see either um, the black patient first or the white patient first, but they always saw both patients. Um, and then we measured the words that they used when they had um, the bedside conversation and uh, their nonverbal communication. And it turned out um, uh, that although they said essentially the same thing when they saw the black and the white patients, they had fewer rapport-building behaviors with the non-white or the black patient than with the white patient. And, and I, I'm hypothesizing that some nonverbal communication can affect trust in physicians, which then affects the ability to have conversations about life-sustaining therapies. So this is just a, a screenshot from one of the doctors seeing the white patient. What we found is that when they saw the white patient, they were much more likely to stand near the bed, closer up to the head of the bed, to touch the patient, to use more open body posture, and to spend more time looking at the surrogate or the patient. If they were seeing a black, the black family, they were more likely to have a closed body posture, which could either mean hands in pockets or they were holding the chart, more time looking over at the monitor or the nurse, less time looking at the family, and more likely to stand farther away and less likely to touch the patient. So, um, uh, basically going to take all of these different tools into the field to study these six U.S. cancer centers, which have, we haven't yet selected them. Um, we're going to select them one at a time, and if there are any themes or hypotheses that we develop, then that can help us decide in sort of a theoretical sampling the next case study to choose. Um, we will um, probably be doing, instead of the simulation that we had um, done in the prior study because we're going to be meeting with outpatient oncologists this time and not just inpatient uh, providers. We're going to be using a vignette-based uh, interviews where we give them a vignette. These are vignettes that Gabe and Nirav have developed, and we're going to use those to stimulate um, conversations about what they um, expect uh, the patients would want and what their next uh, steps in treatment would be. And we're going to include in the vignette a photograph of the patient, and the patient will either be black or white or some other race. And we'll try to get into a little bit of uh, uh, querying about ways in which something about the patient's appearance might influence their initial reactions about what they want to offer the patient. Um, and so we're going to start, hopefully, um, we've, we're just finishing up our pilot phase uh, data collection. Many of you have been um, research subjects, so thank you for that, um, to develop our protocols for observing in the outpatient setting. And we're going to be heading off into the rest of the United States sometime in January to um, do this research at, at six other U.S. cancer centers. So I'll be happy to um, answer any questions you have about the previous research or about the project that's proposed. Any questions? Maybe I missed this part, um, but what distinguished a high-intensity and a low-intensity um, hospital? So in the case of the two that I showed you initially um, that I did the pilot work at, it was the proportion of patients who were admitted to the ICU in the last 30 days of life, mm -hmm. which is one of the national quality forms, quality metrics for patients with advanced cancer. Kathy? I'm curious if you have any reflections on 
in palliative care has changed what you see or how you see it or created new either opportunities or obstacles for you in doing this research? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I. I, I found that. Um, you know, I, as many 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 of you around the room don't know, I took a, um, a hiatus from clinical practice starting in 2003 and didn't start practicing until I came here and started a palliative care fellowship. So when I did a lot of the preliminary work, I was a non-clinician but who had had some experience in in, um, in the intensive care environment, um, and I. I think that the thing that's most likely to happen is that um, I will be more likely to take for granted some of the um, some of the way we do things around here in clinical practice than I would have been. I mean, I think when I was observing, um, even as a, a trained physician who had done um, some clinical care, I was enough on the side of being a layperson, you know, a person who s- saw the behaviors in medicine as, 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 as crazy, basically. Um, and so I think I was, I was a little bit closer to a sociologist or um, an anthropologist than I am now. So I think that I'll, I'll actually have um, less objectivity would be my concern. I, I was just going to, I was just wondering what you found most surprising about, because there's a lot of thing, a lot of features in this study that you don't necessarily find surprising in, in the sense like people being more reserved for different populations, but what is it that you found most surprising that maybe you didn't, you know, as you were going through this study, you didn't? Well, there were so many, to me, there were so many things that were surprising. I mean, the, the, the definition of dying, for example, and, and again, so the whole, the whole, this whole idea of when is a patient dying has become one of my major research interests, and I have a couple of other grants that I'm working on with that, which is this Again, because it, if I asked each of you to review a case, some of you are going to say, okay, it's time to, time to start having the conversation. Um, and some of you are not. And, and we, as palliative care clinicians, get called in when you think it's that time. Um, and so there's this, huge, there's this huge variability in terms of when do we start talking about goals and values and what's medically achievable. It's when the clinician has a subjective experience of like, oh, no, this is not going well. This patient is dying. So that determination of dying is a huge factor that wasn't even on my radar. Um, and, and again, I, I do think it's similar. It's, it's, it's a heuristic. It's something that people use. And I do also think, and I've started doing some research in this area, um, where it turns out that if, uh, if two patients are otherwise um, similar in terms of their risk of mortality, um, which would be sort of like a time of like, okay, if you have a certain risk of mortality, it's time to start thinking about what would you do if, for example, you have a sudden acute deterioration because you're at risk of that acute deterioration, would you want us to send you to the ICU or would you wish not? Um, but um, if the patient has dementia, they're much more likely to have that, that advanced care planning conversation. Or if the patient has cancer, even if they have the exact same risk of mortality and deterioration, right? And so there's these heuristics that, that people are using that are being like, oh, this is the time to do this. So I, that was the thing that was probably one, that was the most um, surprising, intriguing, and that I've kind of taken off with in my other research projects. Um, I'm really 
incident, just the variation in norms across hospitals, and how do you think that evolves, and, and do you view it as kind of a selection process where physicians sort of self-select into hospitals that have similar values to them, or is it an influence process where they sort of start out the same and then based on the hospital they go to, so that is a great question. Um, in these two hospitals so that, that I gave us the um, pilot data, the, um, the low-intensity hospital described um, kind of a, an influential senior person who had a strong interest in medical ethics, who started sort of setting the tone. And then it turns out they do something that's kind of unique for academic medical centers. Um, they, um, they essentially hire their own trainees. So as the, um, in this case, this was intensive care, which was the environment that I was observing, they hire their own trainees. And so they've, they've already been um, acculturated to a set of social norms. And so there was very little heterogeneity across them because they'd all been kind of brought up in the same, um, in the same school of thought. Whereas at the high-intensity hospital, um, there were, there were there, I didn't hear anything about any history of uh, uh, influential persons um, who were attached to high-intensity aggressive care. But they did have a very large um, uh, identity as a transplant center that transplanted patients. They, they were known to transplant patients over the age of 65, um, multiple organ transplants. And so um, what would happen is you would see uh, this. So that was kind of an identity issue. Um, and that they can really save people's lives and they'll do things that other people won't. But then what you saw was as they were taking care of the patient who had traveled a ways to get the transplant, they had their kind of aggressive stance. Um, and this was in particular related to pulmonary hypertension. Then they would go to the next bed, who was like a 98-year-old woman who was admitted from the nursing home next door who had dementia. Um, and they would, they would be, it has like almost like their treatment um, intensity was constitutively on. Like, it was a spillover effect. It didn't even occur to them that she might have a different set of preferences. No, she didn't travel two counties to come here for this transplant. She just got brought over. And so, and so they uh, kind of, um, that identity related to their transplant status spilled over to their elderly patients who um, were not transplant patients. And they also just hired their intensivists and hospital-based physicians from around the country. They didn't um, cold, you know, kind of groom their own, which I think is more similar to most academic medical centers that are just kind of hiring people from around. Other questions? Are you studying race? Are you studying self-reported race or hospital-assigned race, and how well do those open up? So most of my claims-based research has studied is basically using something that's in the um, hospital claim. And so if it's Medicare data, it's coming from SSI, the Social Security Administration, um, and that's actually high positive predictive value, both for black race and for, um, uh, ever since 1997, Hispanic um, ethnicity. Um, when I'm studying it in, um, in these observations, um, when I'm actually um, uh, meeting with folks, um, we, we ask for self-identified race. But we're also listening, again, to what the doctors and, and the nurses and other clinical team mem members are attributing their race and culture as. The fear of omission versus omission mm -hmm. um, that makes me think that it, it might be related to the legalities of it and the risk of being sued. And how do you think that 
plays a role in the whole distinction. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exact. And there have been a lot of hypotheses about whether or not there is um, a difference in litigiousness in in certain regions that might be correlated with healthcare spending. Um, and I didn't I didn't study that. I didn't actually do any data collection about uh, relative numbers of suits, for example, malpractice suits brought against each institution. So I don't know the answer to that. Any um, goals as far as policy goals that will be informed by the work? So, the American Cancer Society, we work to ensure that all patients have access to palliative care from the date of diagnosis, not necessarily as end of life care. Mm -hmm. um, do you hope that you will work with informed um, patients and providers as to the benefits of palliative care, or is there, are there, are there? So, I don't, so I don't know if, um, I don't know if I have a particular policy agenda. Um, my goal in this particular study, after we've completed these six site um, uh, case studies, is to is to try to develop some interventions using social marketing that might be influential in improving the uptake of palliative care in places where there's lower uptake um, of uh, palliative care or where there's higher treatment intensity at the end of life. Um, but uh, but no, I think that's a great question, and probably um, would love to talk more about it. I think we'll uh, probably have to stop there. I'm sure Amber would be willing to answer additional questions uh, afterwards. Thank you for a wonderful thank talk, you. Amber, and thank you. Thank you.